What you believe about God dictates how you will think. Our philosophies dictate how our culture behaves. Politics is simply the enforcement of cultural norms. The truth claims about God, philosophy, culture, and policies will affect what we value. When these things are in alignment, revival is possible. Well, hello there, and welcome to Further Every Day, the podcast where we explore current events through the lens of the Christian worldview. To my right, I got Miss Nikki in the chair of theology. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Glad to have you on. I'm glad to be here. And uh, yours truly, sitting in the chair of philosophy, dealing with uh, the rigor that one must bring to the faith. And to my left, I've got Mr. Steve. How are you, sir? I am doing very well, John Arthur. Good day, good day, good day. <laughs> dealing with the chair of culture, the counterculture the Christian must bring, and uh, the culture that has developed. And to his left, we got Mr. Charlie. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Glad to have you on, sir. It is great to be here. Sitting in the chair of politics. If politics is a God-ordained institution, then yes, the church has every right to be involved in it. So if you've read the title for the podcast today, you know that we're going to talk about nine common abortion arguments and how you can discuss them with your friends and family. Each one of these is really easy to deal with if you understand what a non sequitur is, if you understand the no true Scotsman argument, if you understand just a few basic humanities 101 arguments or fallacies, right, and how to argue against a fallacy. So I just want to jump right into it. Uh, it's a hot topic right now, and it's good to have these one-liners to pull out. And we'll try to deal with each of these from the chair, but argument number one, pro-lifers just want to control women. Okay. That's not really an argument, but let's go ahead. It's more of an accusation. But let's go ahead and kind of dig into it real quick. That'll be slide number one. Um, there's an article from The Guardian where we see that a new poll reveals that uh, pro-lifers are really just interested in controlling women and they're misogynistic. And there's 10 points where they're supposedly um, coming at this from the perspective of sexism. Well, if you read the article, link in the description below, uh, you've got polls like, do you believe that there should be a woman on every board of every, uh, in equal representation of every wo of woman on every board of every company? If you don't believe that, then you're misogynist. Hmm. And what did California just enact last year? Yes. <clears throat> or the year before? And who's all leaving California? Hello. Everyone. So let's headed to let's break down this argument from <laughs> the theological perspective, because I think the fallacy here is, is if you do not agree with my specific prescriptives for solving social problems, therefore, on this moral issue, you are misogynistic, even against yourself, Miss Nikki. Well, I think it's a very interesting uh, title and it, it's to capture attention is what it is. This is not really an argument as it is more uh, more about getting attention and arousing emotion. That's what this is about because it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument, um, but it's a good caption. It makes you stop and say, hey, I'm going to read this 
And then you can listen to their side of it. They're just trying to control women. And nobody wants to be controlled because it's like feeling like you're in slavery. But that's not really what, what the argument is. And if you're a reasonable pers- person, you can sit down and look at why do we fight for the life of an unborn child? And why are you fighting to have this right? That's where we are. It's not about controlling you. It's about a moral issue that we're trying to uh, bring to everybody's attention. And that right there is the theological issue. It's not an issue of whether or not I think that uh, women make better politicians than men. By the way, that's one of the poll questions that they'll use. They'll say polls, you know, they polled conservatives, and they were particularly misogynistic. Do you want to know how I answered that question? Sex doesn't make men or women better leaders. There are other distinguishing characteristics. So I would say no to that poll. I would also say no to the poll of do men make better leaders? It depends on what you're talking about. There's not enough context there. It's a baloney question. What are you what are you leading? What is it that you're trying to promote? Correct. Who who are you leading? In what in what context? Yeah, so what? there's a lot yeah, involved there and and what they do is they skirt around the real uh, heart of the issue to get to the emotion. See, I have to emotionally impact you to see my side of it. So just from the theological chair, I'm, I'm guessing if I can codify that argument, because I want to kind of solidify each one of these arguments, you're saying that this is not an issue of sexism. Let's talk about the theological issue. I formed you in the womb. I knew you before I formed you. God has created every person. And like you said, I knew you before I formed you in the womb. And again, here we go. Psalms 139, the the involvement that God has in creating a person. And it does start before conception. And so that's the issue. It's a redirect. Understand that they'll often redirect from the philosophical uh, chair here. I just want to say uh, this is a non sequitur. It means it does not follow. It's a fancy word for saying what you just said does not make sense. You, you, you connected two and two and got 26. There is no correlation between these two. Just because I do not agree with you about diversity hiring does not mean that I think that there is a less value for women. doesn't mean that I'm not an egalitarian, uh, even if I am a complementarian. It does not mean that I don't think that women are equal. It means that I disagree with the way you are attempting to artificially change reality based on your worldview. I don't agree with it. It doesn't make me a sexist. It makes me disagree with you. And it's the same thing with abortion. It's not an issue of control over women. It's actually an issue of protecting the innocent. And I'll leave that for the chair of politics because that's, that's important. But I want to go over to the chair of culture here. What would be a cultural argument here that Christians just want to control, specifically Christian men, want to control women? Is that not a, a divisive tactic that's specifically meant to fractionalize us and get infighting in between the world and the church and even within the church? Oh, what? Why, definitely, John Arthur. If if the more you can create a a divisive this between men and women, the further you can 
get them apart from each other on topics, um, especially, say, for abortion. You know, um, for those that are pro-lifers and pro-choicers, the further you can get them apart from each other, the more the topic gets, say, hmm, how we should say, violent, like some things are beginning to happen with the uh, Supreme Court justices going to their houses and having to put up fences and cut down on violence. I mean, that's absurd, man. It's ridiculous. This kind, The culture of today becoming violent for protesting, I mean, that's absurd. Well, they've, Come on. they've demonized the conservative pro-lifer, and their objective in this is to not only get you to self-censor, but they also want to make you unhirable. They want to make you, they want to ex- bring you to extinction, however that occurs. <clears throat> so the argument there, uh, uh, from, from what I'm getting from you, is, is that what we're seeing when we crank up the rhetoric on an issue that should be a moral issue, and we turn it into a culture war issue, we're no longer dealing with this on its merits. We are dealing with this based on emotion. Sure, and and the more you make it emotional, the more violence you can create. Uh, people become highly emotional very easily. It's man, you can you can touch people's buttons so easy by bringing up uh, their people's emotions, like like it's unreal. Uh, you can get into emotional arguments by pushing on people's buttons so easy just by touching and and saying certain things during an argument, and, boy, people will fly off the handle. Like, for instance, you can bring up with people that are emotional about certain issues. Some people are like that with, say, politics. Some people are about that with religion. Absolutely. I mean, you know, some people are about that with various topics, and they just fly off the handle, man. I mean, it just gets wild with some people. So that's something that we need to bring back as a culture of respect. Because what, what's happened is, is the culture is now enforcing itself in the realm of politics. And what I want to do with the chair of politics here is kind of articulate when you take a moral issue and you have now claimed that there are two sides that have a differing values on truth, on what is true. I'm trying to implement my truth on the weaker subset. That's what you get with moral relativism. What does that do and look like in our politics? It totally destroys what what you have, the foundation. So... This is where it's important to go back to the beginning of the foundation of this country. What was it founded on? And it was founded on biblical values. So if you don't, if you don't stay strictly with that, you're, you're going to run into some issues. There cannot be two truths. You can only have one, two things that are not the same, one of them, or maybe both. uh, I won't even rule that out, but at least one of them, is a lie 
So when we have a situation where we got two groups that are trying to impose uh, truth, you, you obviously have to go with one. You will never come to a point where you can implement both. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the progressive liberal left today, they're running into that issue. They're running into it with intersectionality and things like that. Because you can't, case in point, if you have a true liberal, what is the left uh, going to say about a white man? They are the low, lowest on the totem pole. And yet, who do we have as a president? So it's really interesting when you look at these dynamics of trying to implement two different truths, it's not going to happen. You can, it is true division, and that's where we're at today. And where we've gotten is that we are now enforcing a morality system that is based on a cultural mores shifting sand. And whatever, and we've watched this, where the, the shift is occurring as we speak, and tomorrow, the moral values, what was okay for Harvey Weinstein to do in 2005, is not okay in 2016, 2018. Welcome to conservatism. We've always said that that sort of stuff was creepy, nasty, and whacked. We said you should get out of that. You should not forfeit yourself for that. However, uh, you know, don't agree with me, whatever, uh, and, and now you've paid the price. So let's, let's start to look at what works, what is actually comporting with reality. Um, on the note of reality, I want to go to argument number two, and then we're going to play a video. And I think it's really important that you listen to this. If you're on audio, don't worry. You'll, you'll, you'll get the general thrust. If you're on video here, you should see the... the some of the pictorial aids that we added to this video. But before we get there, the argument that the infant in the womb is just a clump of cells. It's just a clump of cells. Um, there's, a, there's an article over on Medium uh, by Claire White. And uh, in the argument, she goes and says, yes, it's a clump of cells. And she, she even articulates as a pro-choice individual, it's not, a, it's not a clump of cells. It, it is a human. It is a human embryo. But she'll go on to say, this is a pro-choice. So you'll see the shift from this argument to the issue of personhood. But before we get to that argument, I just want to put this out here. Just a clump of cells. There are so many logical problems with this. Uh, uh, in the chair of theology, I want to go ahead and shift it over to you in just a second here. Um, I know we're going to be hitting Psalms 139 a lot here. <laughs> but, but go ahead and articulate that. If it's just a clump of cells, or rather, how is it not? Well, the problem is it's a clump of cells that is actively progressing into human life. So when... There's life in that clump of cells. That's the problem, is that it's not, it, it's not a clump of cells that if you just leave it to itself, it'll, it'll die off. It has an uh, instruction pattern. I mean, when you study DNA, I mean, there's already a structure pattern 
going on at the moment of conception. Okay, so that DNA is already recorded and the activity has already begun. And that's why we define that as life. That activity is beginning and you're terminating that activity, which is life. So it's not just a clump of cells. It's it. I know that you want to say it's just a clump of cells like, you know, that's a rag over there in the corner. Big deal. Left to itself. It, you know, nothing's going to happen. But in the womb, something is already happening and we can't see it with the naked eye. But that activity is very robust. So. God set that in motion. Who are we to change it? There are so many people who can't get pregnant. People don't realize that is an act of God. Pregnancy is an act of God. Yes, the man and the woman show up and they're involved in that moment. Right. But God creates every single individual who is conceived. And let me just, for some of you who may not understand, I say Psalms 139 all the time. In Psalms 139, it talks about God writing down all your details. They're written down in books in heaven. And he doesn't write them down the moment you're conceived. Those are written down prior to that. And we know from science recently that we have not even discovered all the details of DNA right now. But God has. And it's already written down, and that activity begins at the moment of conception. Amen. And so it's not a clump of cells. It is something that God has put in place. And if you want to do an argument from ontology here, or rather, you know, purpose, you want to deal with the argument of purpose. What is the purpose of those cells? Some people will will counter that, hey, this is just cancer is a clump of cells with its own DNA. And that's an asinine argument because you, you look at it. What is cancer supposed to be? It's not. It's a privation on a healthy body. Right. It is an evil that is being perpetrated on a healthy body, whereas an infant growing to term and being born normally is a human with human rights. And by the way, if you want to deal or deal with consciousness in a little bit, that, that, that's the other argument. We'll deal with that in a little bit, but you do not want to go down that road, as we'll see in a moment. But just a clump of cells. I want to I wanna go a little bit further and uh, talk about that with you, uh, Mr. Steve, from A Chair of Culture. Mm-hmm. We protect bald eagles. We protect turtles. Someone accidentally steps into a pond that has turtles that have their eggs in there, and they will be arrested for 9, 12, 18 months because it was a endangered species or a protected species. What's, what does that say about our culture that we care more about the embryos of a turtle than the human being? What is the cultural argument? How can you articulate that to someone? Speak to someone right now who's pro-abortion, but they would say, yes, that person who accidentally slaughtered a whole bunch of turtles, turtle embryos, I'd how have, would you go about that? I'd have to put my coffee down and shake them and tell them their priorities are messed up. If, if you think that an animal's life, like a turtle, is more important than a human life is, and you're going to put somebody in jail for, you know, accidentally stepping on a turtle when 
you know, legally you can go out and abort a fetus. I mean, that people's priorities, I would say, are are messed up there. And nothing happens to anybody when you abort a baby. It sounds like you get celebrated in today's society if you've had, you know, uh, an abortion and you get highly celebrated if you've had three or four Oh, my goodness, I've had three or four abortions. Oh, let's have a party. I mean, come on, really? But you're going to get thrown in jail if, you know. If you stab if a dolphin or you or, step on a turtle. Yeah, or some endangered species, you're going to, you know, you you kill a bald eagle or a feather if you're not an American Indian and you go to prison for who knows how long. I mean, really? priorities are really messed up here when you consider an American Eagle much more valuable than a human life. And so we're going to go to their next argument that'll often result from that argument. And that's a good argument. And their next step will be, but this human life is interfering with my agency. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We've got a lot of stuff to do. So let's keep this, let's keep rolling here. But a clump of cells politically, once you have done away with the purpose of being in the state of the human as sovereign, as having innate, immeasurable value, what does that allow to happen politically? Just in short, what have we seen that turn into? Chaos, pure chaos. What's interesting about that, you, you're going right down the, the rabbit hole that I was thinking about here a moment ago. <clears throat> When you, you, you literally are making yourself no more valuable than an animal. Well, how do animals act? It's survival of the fittest. Really, that, that's what it is in and of itself. And that's what mankind will become. And what's interesting about that is you'll see that many, a number of different cities, can we talk about Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, Portland, uh, Los Angeles, uh, and there's a number of others that really are not enforcing their laws. The DAs are deciding not to prosecute different cases. And what have we got turning up? It's chaos. It's survival of the fittest. And as a, as a culture, and I'm not really trying to speak from a cultural point here, it's a political point. When you do that, you are not going to be able to govern. Or you've, you've abdicated the governing process. Or worse, you'll see that human value goes down on two ends of the spectrum, mm -hmm. the very young and the very old, along with the disabled. And you know, when you, when you think about this, John Arthur, the attacks today are not new. Um, it was 20, 30 years ago, and we were talking about physician-assisted suicide. And how terrible that is. And yeah. now it's in place in some places. And so, and over in the last five to 10 years, we've really seen more talk about infanticide, uh, especially within the last three. It, it, the, the dialogue has picked up tremendously on these very important issues. On that note, I want to go ahead and play a clip from a uh, Senate testimony hearing. And uh, I think... 
I think you'll find it interesting. Let's go ahead and play it. And Dr. Levitino, we'll begin with you. Welcome. Thank you, Chairman and members of the committee. Um, I only have five minutes, so I'm going to get right to it. Second trimester D&E abortions performed between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. And she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks. But she's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned, and after removing laminaria, you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand or smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A d &E procedure is a blind abortion, so picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you, and use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head in the baby that size is about the size of a large plum, can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times, sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you just successfully performed a second trimester DNA abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. One more question, Dr. Levitino. Why did you end your practice of doing abortions? I did over 1,200 abortions over a four-year period in private practice, not counting the ones that I did during my training. Um, I met my wife at, um, during my first year of training at Albany Medical Center. We got married about a year later and found that we had an infertility problem. After years of failed infertility treatment and several years trying to adopt a child, we were blessed with a, adopting a, a little girl that we named Heather. And, August of 1978. Um, as sometimes happens in those situations, my wife got pregnant the very next month, and we had two children 10 months apart. Um, two months short of my daughter Heather's sixth birthday, she was killed in an auto accident and literally died in her arms in the back of an ambulance. Anyone who has children might think they have some idea of what that feels like, but unless you've been through it yourself, you have no idea whatsoever. Um, I know people find it hard to believe, but uh, what do you do after disaster? You bury your child and then you go back to your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after my daughter died that I showed up at Albany Medical Center OR number 9 to perform my first second trimester d &E abortion. I wasn't thinking of it as anything special. This was routine to me. Um, but I reached in, literally pulled out an arm or leg and got sick. You know, earlier on, I described stacking up body parts on the side of the table. It's not to, you know, gross people out, to use a simple term. When you do an, an abortion, you need to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. If you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Um, so I soldiered on and finished that abortion. And I know it sounds, as I said, hard for people to believe, but I'm 
I'm telling you straight up my experience. You know, after over 1,200 abortions, first and second trimester up to 24 weeks and all the rest of it, and being very dedicated to it, for the first time in my life I really looked. I really looked at that pile of body parts on the side of the table. And I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't see all the money I just made. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And I stopped doing late-term abortions after that, and several months later stopped doing all abortions. Thank you. So, I didn't want to unnecessarily bring that out. I didn't want to get people to, you know, become squeamish. But did you? But I think it's critical that we understand exactly what's going on with a abortion. An abortion is a euphemism. It's not a real word. And you know, John Arthur, I think the thing that really caught me in that clip was the collective gasp when he talked about the face there's a th th there's it, a human being that that meeting right there should have done something to everybody in that room everybody i think one of the the worst things that we're doing is we keep talking about a woman's right, a woman's right, a woman's right, a woman's right. What about the baby's right? Thank you. What about the it's, baby? It's one of those things, that, and, and we just talked about it. You know, when we talk about an eagle or a turtle or a dolphin being more valuable than a, on a human life, you know, when somebody says, well, you support my cause of saving the whales. Sure, I'll support your cause saving the whales when you so support my cause for saving babies. I love the. I, That's the priority. There's a great bumper sticker or a, or a fridge magnet I've, I've seen around with the panda saying "Save the human babies." <laughs> it, it's 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 a very brilliant ploy, and and, and so. I, I think we're. If I could interject here, please do. The issue here is about responsibility. That's mm. that's what everybody is fighting against. When you get a driver's license and you get into a vehicle, you now are responsible for how you handle that vehicle because there's other people who have are in vehicles and their lives are important. And if you mishandle that vehicle, like you drink and then you drive and you kill somebody, that's your responsibility. That's because you didn't handle what you should have done. You didn't handle your autonomy. That, and when you are fighting for abortion, when, if you're having sex, that's a responsibility. Let's get there. Let's keep going. Let's okay. keep going. Let's okay. keep going. Let's keep going because you're right. And, let's, and we're, we're, we're going to hit that point. I want to hit that point. Mm. Let's keep rolling. Argument number three, personhood. After that clip that we just listened to, I just want to deal with the issue of personhood. When is someone a person who grants you personhood? Is it the state? No. Well, we clearly see what happens, and this is where I was going earlier. We clearly see what happens with the state, yeah. and, and, and I want to, dig to dictate to that, but chair of theology, who dictates personhood? God does. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. Uh, you were in my mind before you were in the world. How are we made? In what image are we made? We're made in the image of God. I mean, the, 
there's there's no question that God, if you have an understanding of who God is, that God has endowed you with him, with a personhood. And let's talk about the philosophical issue, mature philosophy. If personhood is something that is not innate, if it is not innate, were the Nazis really wrong? Is this a sliding scale? Wow. wow. Is this a sliding scale of Excellent personhood? Question. Because a 75-year-old on, on the government dole who has cancer and will take $3 million for their cancer treatment to be meted out is going to be taking that $3 million from a three-year-old who needs, over the course of their life, checkups, leg surgeries for you know fighting in, the, in a war for the state, uh, workman's comp, whatever it is, they're taking away from the young. So now we have something they used to call a useless eater. When personhood is not innate, man sets the standard to the chair of culture. Once you have a culture, you know, I, 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 loved, uh, I loved and hated the Man in a High Castle by, from Amazon. Uh, the, the original book was, was well-written, and it was a great look at what would, what would have happened if we had lost World War II to the Japanese and to the Nazis, to their worldview, what would have happened in the 1960s. It was an interesting interesting show. Uh, can't recommend it. Rated, rated R sex type <coughs> stuff in there. That's why I stopped watching it. But they, they go into this culture where children understand that they must submit themselves for destruction because they're not a full person if they have a disability. Wow. That let, let, just, just marinate on that and bring that out. What kind of culture do you get? What kind of culture do you get when you have a culture where someone's value or their personhood is set by an exterior force, not by an interior innate God-given force. You don't become worth much, man. Uh, you know, your value is determined on what you can produce, what you can do, um, what you're capable of doing, or if you're not capable of doing what you're not able to do, if you're not able to work, if you are able to work, uh, if you're a demand on the system, if you're not a demand on the system, if you give to the system or you just take from the system, that's where your value lies. And if you are just nothing but a taker, receiver, and someone who doesn't give to the system, then you know you're not your value isn't there, and so they look at you as expendable from a cultural perspective. You know, and and I, that's not good when you start looking at it from a cultural perspective, especially if the culture goes that way. The cultural question I would ask them is. Do you want to live in a culture where your value is not innate, but it is determined by location, i.e. the womb or the nursing home, by ability 
or by cognitive function. It wouldn't stop there no. either, John Arthur. It'd go, it, it would go further. It it's goes a, to belief. Oh, and and, yeah. and yeah. the chair of politics, I want you to roll this. Where does it go once the culture has accepted these norms? Where does it go politically? Now you're talking about the death panel that we were scared about with Obamacare. Now you're talking about somebody sitting on a panel that says, mm, yep, you live. Uh, no, you don't. That, that's literally what you do. You get to a point where you're just picking and choosing and saying, I like you. I like your background. I don't like you. I don't like your background. That's, I mean, it, it is the worst of mankind that you could come to. Ministry of life. And if I can, <laughs> and if I can sit in the chair of economics just for a second, I just want to put that out there. Your value being set by anyone other than God is devaluing you. And I, we don't have a chair of economics today. We haven't been sitting in it because it'd be way too e easy to just wail on entities like Pan Planned Parenthood. Oh wow! It, it could become a just a distinct. But I, I, I kind of want to pull back from that today just a little bit. Want to focus on the apologetic issue, not necessarily the evil that's being perpetrated by Planned Parenthood. And there you have a man. We just listened to him talk. He was part of that system for years, and he came to it. These people are not our enemies. They and are it, hostages in a spiritual warfare. What's interesting about that, too, John Arthur, is that it wasn't an argument that a group of people, were, they weren't shouting at him and telling him, you got to believe this, you got to believe this, you got to believe this. This is something that he came to, he and his wife. Yes. And so it, it's, it's not just those that are going to church it's not just those there are a number of people in the in the anti-abortion group that are not church-going people but still don't believe in abortion it's it's not just a religious issue there's people that see it as a moral issue that needs to be dealt with they yeah. see it as something that will affect them and this guy did over 1200 abortion Correct. Uh, and more during his learning part. I mean, that's, you're not, Correct. you're talking somebody who, who, who knows act, it. Yeah, exactly. Correct. Correct. So moving forward, argument number four. Another common claim. You're just pro-birth. You're not pro-life. If someone gives you that argument, can, can I just say that, that you understand that you've already won? This is a layup and a dunk. And what, what, what you have to do is not lay up and dunk. You have to start asking questions. Start asking questions. What do you mean by that? And then they're going to immediately go to something like this, this, this article from Pro-Choice America, where they go and they say, it's pretty hard to call yourself pro-life if you're actively working to imprison or execute women who access safe abortion care. Okay, that's a pretty, pretty low outlier fringe. Hold on, I'll hold that thought. Take babies away from their parents and lock them in cages with no plan to reunite them. Talking about uh, the border crisis, which by the way, all those pictures were from a pro-choice president, Barack Obama. Silence doctors and strip reproductive care from millions of low-income people. Just because we don't think welfare doesn't uh, doesn't mean the right solution means that uh, you know uh, <laughs> that, that we're just pro birth, 
it means that we disagree with you on these issues. Uh, you know, you, you want to defy, deny affordable health care to people with pre-existing conditions. That's not how insurance works. If that, you know, if someone has a pre-existing condition and you, you, can, you can just ask for insurance with a $4 million bill in play, that's called a, someone else's bank account. Insurance is a gamble. Um, so all that to say, all that to say, if someone comes at you with that non sequitur, go ahead and ask them, are you deflecting? <laughs> I don't think we need to go around the room unless anyone has a quick thought on that one. Correct. Um, <laughs> it's such a weird, it's such a weird question. I mean, it would it would take me back like <laughs> what? You know, I'd be like because it's a non sequitur. It does not follow. It doesn't make any sense to me. That that just doesn't make any sense. But then again, the reason they have to come up with these emotional statements or these statements is to draw emotion out of you. Because they can't stand, they don't have an argument to really stand on, and that's that's why we have these, the you know you just want to control women and you want to you know do this and you're anti women and it's not because that's the argument, they can't stand on the argument. And so, from a theological perspective, how are we to come to these people? Well, we always come to them in in grace. You know, I'm you don't stand there and call them names and you don't are ugly and. When you meet somebody who's had an abortion, you don't, you can't be cruel. Remember, it's not about, it's not about winning the argument. It's really about holding righteousness in society. It's Remember winning your purpose. Intellectual argument. No, no, it's winning the person. Yeah. We want to win the person. Absolutely. Right. But because I'm, if we win the intellectual argument, but we lose the person, yes, we have turned them away. We have to win the yep. whole war. And that's the thing that I think conservatives miss sometimes. I, 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 I hate the the punditry, ha-ha, dumb libtard sort of mentality. That is so destructive. It is yeah. It has no business being in the Christian's vocabulary. That sort of, as, as someone you know who tinkered with the idea when I was very young, then I realized, wait, this is just toxic. This is just corrosive. It's not good to, to, to insult people. What you need to be about is winning them. And so when you have someone right. like this, ask them, why are you deflecting? I'm talking about abortion specifically. You are making a straw man of my positions on everything else because you cannot deal with the arguments that I've brought right you here. Know, John Arthur, what is making you think? What's making you hold on to this so strongly? Yes. You know, I was... Um thinking about what it says in the Bible when Paul came and he was talking to the people and that they worshiped the idol Diana. And um, the men of the city got together and said, hey, these people are turning the world upside down. They're turning our culture, our world upside down by preaching this other God. And, of course, then it affected their, their finances. As a Christian, what you are doing when you come to a person that has a belief that's contrary to the word of God you're introducing something to them that uh, they may know, they may not know, they may accept, they may not accept. But you are bringing an upside-down uh, thing to their world. You're and and I, on, on Yes, head. you are. And some of them have a hard time accepting that. I know that when Charlie and I met, we come from two different families, two different family cultures. He looked at things one way, I looked at things another way. 
But I tell you what, he introduced me to things that, oh, that makes more sense. You know, when you look at the consequences, and that's where we haven't con- gone yet, is consequences. And let's, and let's get there. Let's get there. So and, mov- moving on to the repercussions of those consequences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when someone comes with this, we've got it. We've got to wrap this one up and move on to the next as soon as possible. When someone comes at you with a straw man argument from a chair of culture, uh, a good question to ask them might be something like, do you really want us to have this discussion with pejoratives and with, with, with insulting caricatures of each other, or do you want to have a rational discussion? How would you how would you articulate that to someone? A- answer someone who's given you this argument. You only you you you're only pro birth. Answer them with why why would you why would you want to devolve this to that? Yeah, uh, you know I would. My response would be more in the, like, why are you devolving yourself to the point of name calling? instead of having a logical, intelligent debate on the issues and the facts. Let's talk about the facts of the issues. Excuse me. The issue that we're going to talk about is this abortion issue. Let's bring up the facts. Let's research these facts. Let's don't resort to name-calling. Name-calling doesn't solve an issue. It doesn't show what is going on? It doesn't show the consequences of your actions, the repercussions of those consequences, because people don't think about the repercussions of what goes on later on in life. You know, Charlie, Nikki, and I both know that the decisions that we made when we were younger, we think about those decisions now and we go, man, if I'd have known the consequences or the repercussions that it would have befallen upon us later on in life, I might not have made that decision or I might not have done this particular thing when I was younger, knowing full well it would have done this. I know particularly myself on what was going on, I would not have done a number of things we all growing up in my life. You know, I mean... It's, it's what happens when you're young. You make irresponsible decisions, especially if you don't have the proper guidance. And it goes along with proper guidance. And one of those founding guidance is the Bible. Amen. And Bible. And we need to come alongside these, these people. We need to be a culture as a church that can come alongside these young women and help them, and help them with their children when they get to that point. Correct. And that's something that's for the church. Now, moving over to the chair of politics, I, it, I, I think we've hashed this question pretty well. But what I want to do is I want to get to once the political argument has come down to which side of the aisle do you sit on. What does that do to our ability to make laws? Because there's, there, there are things about the conservative platform that have sometimes been amiss. And, you know, what's interesting about you saying that statement right there is that you can see from this, when you stand back and look, 
the church is the one that has really missed the opportunity to yes. talk about this. Yes. And, and you know, I, I'm really happy that we're, we're having this discussion because it, it does need to be discussed. And I'll tell you another one just very quickly, mental health. Yeah. That's a big one. But back to this, when you, when you look at just, I think back to the 70s and 80s, the 70s when I was growing up as a, as a kid, there were Republicans, there were Democrats, but they worked together. Many times they would work together. When, when George W. Bush uh, became president, I was excited about that. And the reason was is because he actually was getting so much accomplished in the state of Texas because he was working with a Democratic lieutenant governor. That says a lot. It says a lot. When you start dividing yourselves and, and you say you're on this side and you're on this side and, and you actually put a wall up between the two, you're not going to get anything done. When everything is, where nothing is religious, everything's political. Yes. When everything's religious, nothing is political. Amen. It's all an issue of right and wrong. And that's where we need to return to as a country. Yep. Now, let's move on to the next set of arguments. And I want to pull sort of the, the commentary from the violinist argument. The violinist argument is, um, well, let's, let's, let's talk about it. It's riddled with problems, but it is now the... Uh, argument of choice for the pro-choicers. And this comes from uh, prolife.standard.edu. Link in the description below. Uh, educated pro-choicers who claim that the question of fetal personhood is irrelevant because of the mother's right to an abortion would trump the fetus's right to life even if it is a person. They may bring up Ju Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous violinist analogy, or some variation of it. So if you're not familiar with this analogy, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, a man, a violinist, is dying, and the only way to prolong his life is to hook him up to another human, to siphon off some of that person's blood or kidney function, or whatever is necessary here, as a form of life support. He must remain in the state for several months necessary for medical the, the medical technology to reach its points where it can intervene and completely resuscitate him. So the music lovers take this violinist and to save him, they hook this person up to you and they kidnap you in the middle of the night and they hook you up to him and you are strapped down and waiting for months and you, you wake up one morning and this violinist is next to you. You're going to have to wait for months for the medical technology to come to the point where it can save this person. Uh, they will say, do you have the right to unhook yourself from the violinist? <laughs> and, and, and so <laughs> let, let, let's answer the question honestly, because this is a foolish question. Not only is it a it, not only is it a bad analogy, but it's a foolish question. But do you have the right to unhook yourself from giving life support, Miss Nikki? What do you think? Well, my it's a it, it, it's I, a let trap. Me, I I know is it yes. is and it is a trap. But did you hook yourself up? Number one, understanding this. Yes. And I think anybody would understand there may come a point that you decide that you have to unhook yourself. But and, 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 and let's pause. Let's pause there. It's a voluntary position. 
There you go. Because you're correct. Because you're correct. It is a it is a very different issue. And I think yes. I think everyone in here agrees. I, I'm getting nods mm -hmm. across the room. Everyone agrees. Yeah. But the answer to the question is yes. But there's a problem. They're going to go and say because you are hooked up against your will with no repercussion, nothing that you have done or that anyone else, you are hooked up to this woman or, or to, to, to this man. And you're a woman, you're hooked up to this man. You removing your life support is the same as having sex out of wedlock, going to an abortionist and stabbing the baby in the head. Let's break this apart. Let's break this apart, and let's go ahead and start to deal with argument number five that we're going to call argument number five today. I have the right to an abortion because the baby is a stranger in a leech that has appeared unplanned, unannounced, and unwanted. First off, your, your behavior created this life. Yes. Okay, so you entered into activity that you knew could create a life. If you were not prepared to become a mother then you should have taken contraceptives This woman to prevent. is jumping to argument number six, but you're I'm right. I'm sorry. This is, this is not about your right to choose. This is about your right to take responsibility for your actions. Yes. And what we're seeing in our society and why we have these DAs that are letting these people go is because we're not taking responsibility, no responsibility. for our actions. We don't want the consequences. We want a happy give-me-give-me give me life without the consequences, and you cannot live life without consequences. I'm sorry, Absolutely. I'm passionate about that. Absolutely, no, you, you're 100% correct. You're 100% <laughs> correct, and here, here, here's what I wanna, I wanna start to dissect this, because we're gonna go deep here. We're gonna go deep in this argument, because it really exemplifies four key arguments from the pro-choice movement that just do not make sense. You have the right, because the baby is a stranger because this is not something that you want because this is something that is that that is foreign well even That's if it was even if the baby was foreign and you had no responsibility i want to i want to pull back even if the baby is a foreign entity like the violinist there's a difference between you withdrawing your life support for the violinist which is a passive act he does not have the right to not die. He has the right to life. That violinist removing your life support from him is very different than active murder. If you actively murder someone, that is radically different than you letting go for your own autonomy. That's a critical point. When you are dealing with something where you, we've now allowed murder to enter the conversation as opposed to that passive uh, activity of releasing, allowing. No one thinks that a patient saying, I don't want life support anymore is, um, is somehow murder when you unplug them. If they, if they said, I don't want life support anymore, that's not murder. So I'm, I'm going to pose this next one. Uh, this is more, more of a chair philosophy thing, but I, they'll say, I, can, I did not consent to the pregnancy, just the sex. 
I wanted pregnancy mm. or I wanted sex. I did not want the pregnancy. Mm. Uh, if you read the the analogy in the in the in the show map, do you, do you have that, Mister Charlie? Give me just a moment here. I, w- I want you guys to think about this analogy, and it's a it's a it's a half decent analogy, but Miss Nikki was was alluding I've, to it a moment ago. I've got it here. Go ahead. So the lack of con- uh, consent argument holds little water. Consider this analogy. Someone playing baseball in the street may not have consented to the property damage caused by an accidental window break, but they will have to face the repercussions. If your child was conceived by a consensual act of procreation, then this is no different. You may attempt to argue that you have no responsibility for your actions and that you do not want a child. If so, adoption is an option for you. And I I would totally concur with that. That's really uh, Nikki's point about the issue of taking responsibility. And I was thinking of the word accountability, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's a very passionate subject, but the thing is when we look at this issue and I think the core issue, and this is where as Christians, I think we need to focus the argument is this issue of when does life become Life, when does it take value? And I love the, the reference back to Psalm 139. That is, that is where it's at. So this issue really needs to be dealt with from where do we stand from a worldview? And that's where things are argued. Let me, I'm going to interject here. I'm sorry. Go for it. Please do. If I say I consented to drinking, I consented to driving my car, I did not consent to this accident. Correct. That won't hold water. Correct. And so that's, that's, that's where we want to make sure that we're thinking about this. And then the next one. Uh, actually, I want to deal one more, one more thing on, on the issue of consent. Rape and incest. It's always going to come up. Yeah. The rape and incest issue is 1% of abortions, roughly. But how does a predator's act on one vulnerable party justify the victim of the original act committing an even more egregious crime on a more vulnerable individual. Actually, I, I, in those scenarios, I really don't think you can make one statement because there's so much emotion and, and trauma involved in that, that in, in that scenario, I think you have to unpack that in a very different way and look at that in a very different, this is not what we're talking about. This is abortion on demand. I agree. And in, in, in those situations, those are very traumatic. But they'll go there. But, 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 but they'll but go there. The 99% it's not, will go there. I know, that, but that is not – I don't believe that that would be an argument if that was the only time that I, – I just don't think it would be an argument if those were the only abortions that were happening because it would be so, so minute. This is about an on-demand abortion – um, abortion of convenience. Is that's what correct. It is, this is th- what it's yes. all about, and that's yes. the and, and that's the primary issue. If you have an issue of rape or incest, those are hard cases, but just understand something. That baby is not the perpetrator on the woman. That baby is yeah. not the perpetrator on the woman. Uh, they did nothing to deserve being body parts on a tray. Ripped apart piece by piece. 
Uh, I have my own autonomy over my own body. Argument number seven. I'm going to put together uh, kind of a crummy analogy for y'all. But let's say that you're flying on a plane. Okay, you, you have bodily autonomy. I have the right to not have this baby in my womb. He or she is an inconvenience. If let, let, Let's carry it to a ridiculous extreme. You're on a plane. Some turbulence lands someone in your lap, and they break their arm or their leg, and they're not able to get up. While landing the plane, do you have the right to kill this person because they are affecting your bodily autonomy. If moving them will kill you, you know. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Let's let let's let's shrink down the time of the inconvenience, just so that you can see. This argument doesn't hold. There is no there is no bodily autonomy that gives you the right to employ lethal measures on someone else for something that they cannot control. That doesn't, that doesn't exist. You have autonomy. You started to say it, contraceptives, abstinence, adoption. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't say this lightly. A lot of people are going to want kids when they're in their 30s, when they didn't want it in their teens and 20s. But if, if, you, if you're going to do, if, if it's abortion or a hysterectomy or vasectomy, I'm just going to say maybe you should consider that option. Right. Maybe you should consider that option. Right, right, I, and I don't say that lightly. I know that sounds awful, but suffice it to say, if you really, really think that you're not going to be able to do that, you don't want to do that, and you're sure that you're abortion-minded, maybe you should just avoid it. It will be cheaper in the long run. Yep. It will be cheaper, and if you decide to adopt later, that's a win. Argument number eight. If I cannot be compelled to give an organ to a stranger even my own child, how can I give him my uterus? The argument was articulated in a debate uh, where a pro-abort said, okay, let's take, the, let's take the violinist argument just one step further. Let's imagine that it's not a violinist, but it's your child, and you have the only kidney in the world that can be given to this child, and that's the only way this child would live. Does the government have the right to mandate that you give it? And the answer is obviously... No. no. Again, it's a false equivalence. It's saying that me not giving something is the same as an active act of murder. But let's break it down because there's three interesting points here. Kidney transplant is a permanent defect that is caused on the donor. A pregnancy is nine months long. And yes, pregnancy changes the woman's body. Okay, But I'm sorry, it's not the same as going on dialysis if your other kidney fails. Mm -hmm. It is not the same. These are not equivalent. These are not, these are not the same. Number two, the issue of purpose or ontology is really important here. What is the kidney for? Filtering. For filtering for you. Filter. What the is the uterus filter. for? Birth. Mm -hmm. And that's the one place that life is safe. Or at least right. should be. Should be. Which is sacred. So let's 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 go one more. The infant versus the organ donor recipient. L l l we've already said that you don't have the right to just kill the infant. But let's let, let's take this a step further. 
if you don't donate the organ, you have a healthy body. The person doesn't have a right to not die. They have a right to life. That other patient dies or your child dies. Okay? Maybe we would maybe we all in this room would want to give our kidney to our child. But you don't they don't they have the right to life, not the right to die. That child, if you don't interfere, will be born and live. If you actively murder the child, then that child will not be alive. And by the way, studies show five to ten years after the abortion, you have a substantively higher suicidality among the women who went through, went through the abortion ordeal. It, it doesn't happen at first. It makes total sense because it's, it becomes a regret. It becomes a regret. <coughs> yep. and, and so a third trimester abortion is never necessary. It is easier to induce labor. Second trimester abortion, we saw a picture of a 22-week-old infant in the intensive care. It is never necessary to kill a late second or a third trimester child. It is a matter of expediency because it is more legal to chop up that 30-week-old baby inside the womb than it is out. It's more economically beneficial. And it's more economically beneficial. That's why we didn't, because every single, every single round would have been Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood. <laughs> yeah. They're making $1,000 sometimes $5,000 in abortion, depending upon what part of the country you're in. And one day is a $10,000 or a $15,000 or a $25,000 day per abortionist. Argument number nine. I have reproductive rights. Miss Nikki, do you want to talk about the difference between reproduction and conception? And, you and sex? <laughs> You do have reproduction rights, uh, and if you are choosing to have sex, then you are aware that you can reproduce, reproduce, and you have access to um, birth control, and you know that all birth control is not 100% guaranteed. So just like if you're getting into a car to drive and you're getting into a bed to have sex, you know there's a risk involved, and you have to accept the responsibility. You've already exercised those reproductive rights. That's correct. They're already at the point of... It's, it's not that you're... It's, it's about society taking responsibility for actions. That's what our laws are based on. That's what creates a society that brings um, account accountability and um, a productive society is a society where people take responsibility for their actions. Well, Amen. if you pay attention to... Well, I know you have, uh, but... In today's culture, you know, people don't want responsibility. People don't want uh, repercussions, consequences. They just want, you know, to receive government money and not have responsibilities for anything and, you know, have the government pay for their school and all of their bills and everything else. We want a culture of responsibility. Very good. Moving over to the chair of politics. We've got to wrap it up for today. I think it's really important that as Christians we be involved in the political process, but even before you get involved in the political process, you should understand the basis of where you stand 
in your worldview and why you stand there. Christian worldview is the only one that really can cohesively be defended and really and enforced and enforced and bring about truly an opportunity for people to live. Amen. And just getting the chair of theology's last thoughts. What is a an important reminder? Give us one important reminder to take away this week if we're talking to someone who's abortion minded. The consequences later on. You may do something today that hey, it's okay. But you you know, motherhood is something that I don't think you can easily define. And I know a lot of people that have had abortions, there's a lot of regret later on and a lot of suffering because of it, especially when you have your first child and you realized, oh, it could have been another one. This is what I missed. This is an eternal consequence. Yeah, When you look at your first baby and you've maybe had one or two abortions before that, I I think it can be very um, painful. There's an eternal consequence. And again, just look at it this way, folks. At the end of the day, God made you. He knew you. He formed you. And that infant, that infant is your legacy. Mm. And don't destroy your legacy. With that said, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Hopefully, some of you are still around. I'm pretty sure we're going to see a dip down on the viewership after the abortion video. For those of you who are willing to stick through it, thank you. Uh, that is a serious thing, and we need to understand what's actually occurring. So like, comment, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Links in the description down below. We hope and pray that you've been taking uh, some good uh, apologetics away from this. Uh, if you didn't like this, as always, double smash that dislike button. We love you all. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. All right. One more thing for you all. One more thing. So what is your least favorite pro-abortion argument lightning round go chair of theology oh gosh you caught me go somewhere else because you caught me on off guard on that one my, my my least favorite my least favorite is the issue of i did not consent to having a pregnancy that is my least favorite argument i think it is the most asinine argument that exists chair culture uh, man i i was gonna say that I, i'll go along with that i did not consent to to pregnancy, I did not consent to, Just to procreation. Uh, the procreation. You know, I don't want the consequences of this, but I, I want to have sex. Yep. How about you, Mr. Charlie? It's my right to choose, yep. as if the baby doesn't have a right to choose. Okay, I will say that mine is, it's a clump of cells. I hate that one. I, it's a clump of cells. That's so... That's just... Absolutely. So tell us your least favorite down in the comment section below. It helps the algorithm and uh, makes YouTube nice and mad. Love y'all. Bye. 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 Bye.